0: Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best bendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Heinsley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. For today's episode, I'm so happy to welcome Savita Sandhu. Savita is going to tell us about um, the role that nutrition can play in the management of hypermobility syndromes. So let me do a little bit more of introducing of Savita, who goes by Savvy also. Savvy is an accredited practicing dietitian with a background in patient advocacy based at the Sunshine Coast of Australia. Through her own experience with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, she has become passionate about helping others with hypermobility find ease and clarity on their nutrition journeys at her clinic called Savvy Dietetics. You can find her online at hypermobility.dietitian on Instagram or by Googling Savvy Dietetics, S-A-V-V-Y. When she's not working or resting, Savvy loves spending her free time with her tiny dog, Cammie, rock climbing at nearby mountains or doing and sometimes finishing sewing projects. Savvy, welcome. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today.
1: Hi, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk today.
0: (laughs) Great. Why don't you start out by telling listeners a little bit about your own experience with hypermobility and how that has shaped the work that you do now.
1: Yeah, so for my hypermobility journey, I wasn't actually diagnosed until a year ago. So it's taken quite a long time to get to that point. And I think like many people with hypermobility, I've had symptoms of hypermobility, POTS, MCAS, pretty much since birth. So if I think back, starting right when I was a baby, I remember my mum saying that I had quite uh, bad chemical sensitivities, even to things like nappies, getting nappy rash mm. in school, I had quite a few issues with, I remember getting like heart ultrasounds quite frequently because I'd always say that my heart was beating really fast and it felt like I could feel my heart beating out of my chest. But mm. of course, male doctors would just ride that off as anxiety, <laughs> Right. even though, you know, it was the kind of thing like you would stand up to go change classes, but your heart rate would just stay up for the next hour after that. And you'd always just feel really jittery. Yeah. So I'd always had these like weird little things that was just rode right off as anxiety and got to the point where throughout school, a lot of joint pain as well, a lot of gut issues. And I ended up working with a nutritionist. They were absolutely life changing. Mm. And through that, I learned that I was gluten and dairy intolerant. And I think it was like the first year of high school, cut those things out got a lot better and kind of tracked that way through the rest of school. Unfortunately, then in my second year of uni, studying dietetics was a really tough year. I ended up burning out and having to take a year off things. Mm-hmm. And um, that then led to a whole heap more gut issues, a whole lot of chronic fatigue, waking up, feeling really disorientated, really dizzy, lots of weight loss. And that started more of my journey into the chronic illness space, trying to figure out what was exactly happening in my body and what diagnosis we could put to it. I got pretty quickly slapped with a label of undifferentiated connective tissue disease. So Mm. we were in the right bucket of connective tissue disorders, just not quite in the hypermobility space. Mm. And it just stayed like that for a bit. And It was interesting because unlike many other people with hypermobility, I actually knew about Ehlers-Danlos from quite a young age because one of my best friends in primary school had it, except the thing is that her diagnosis presented very, very differently to mine. So although we Googled it a long, long time ago and kind of thought, oh, yeah, that looks like my mum, <laughs> that's uh-huh. her to a T, we never really put it that mm. that was what we had and that was what was causing our issues. Interesting. But then it took taking year off of life getting over the burnout, resting up, getting my nervous system back to being regulated, finishing my degree, Mm -hmm. and then starting up my clinic. And of course, the areas that I was interested in were chronic pain, chronic gut issues, food intolerances, women's health, nutrient deficiencies. And the types of people that attracted were hypermobile clients. So I ended up just seeing more and more hypermobile clients. A physio specialising in hypermobility was actually just one kilometre down the road from me, so we worked quite closely together for a period of time as well. Not just Mendy, which is run by Sharon Hennessy. Their clinic's now moved a bit further away, but... Oh, i have actually um, heard were, of that clinic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Sharon's absolutely wonderful, and they've been such a great touchpoint for learning more about hypermobility and that side Fabulous. of things. But, yeah, and then eventually got to the point where I was just listening to all of these client stories and was like oh my god that's just me I've mm-hmm. got all of these symptoms and then I've probably got POTS and MCAS too yeah. and then thankfully through working with these people through learning more from other health professionals in the area I ended up going to see going to see a really awesome rheumatologist in Brisbane she was so lovely took so much time she diagnosed me with hypermobility spectrum disorder because I'm hypermobile but not in the baiting way so mm-hmm. um, I don't really have much hand hypermobility but I've got a lot spine, shoulder, hip hypermobility, which is not tested in the Bighton score as much. So it took getting my mom diagnosed and then Mm. I got diagnosed with HEDS after that to tick that box. I see. That's kind of where that's brought me up until now.
0: That's fascinating. We could do another podcast episode on the Bighton scale and it's usefulness or not. (laughs) We'll leave it there for now, but it's a fascinating story. Thank you for sharing that. It reminds me a lot about my own journey actually, because I didn't okay. get diagnosed with hypermobile EDS until about four years ago at age forty-two, okay. forty-three. 43. And some of what led me to that was actually my PT practice where I specialized in yoga and yoga related injuries. I just kept seeing clients who were just like me and had all the same issues that I'd always had. And so it's an interesting parallel.
1: Yeah, it's interesting as well, because with yoga, that's actually something that I did a lot of my mom's done, Mm -hmm. her like 350 hour yoga teacher training, because she's got a background in like OT and all the physical like anatomy side of things too, and loves that. And that was like around the same time I figured out I was hypermobile, actually stopped yoga because I got COVID. And realize mm. that most of my physical pain went away <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we realized and mom realized the same. And I've learned so much from your page because all the little tips and tricks to actually do yoga in a safe way for hypermobility. So that's made a big impact yeah. on my health journey as well.
0: Yeah, same. I had um, many years of chronic pain that was directly tied to my yoga practice. I just never put the two together, but it really is about just finding the way to move that supports this body and. As we know, when five people say the word yoga, they might mean five different things. (laughs) So, yeah. I'd love to hear more about the most common ways people with hypermobility syndromes present with GI issues. Give us some background on that and then all the different ways that nutrition can play a role in people's management.
1: Yeah, big topic. Let's get into it. So I guess with hypermobility. It's that laxity in the connective tissue in our body. And because connective tissue is found everywhere in our body, we can have so many different impacts. For nutrition specifically, what that means is anywhere from our mouth to our butt, we can have problems and they can present very differently person to person. So there's not really one way that we see a hypermobile person present with gut symptoms. And there's not really because of that one main way way that we treat that. Mm -hmm. So I guess if we run through a few ways that hypermobile people can present, if we just start at the top of our body with our mouth, chewing problems. So we often feel of that TMJ impact.
0: I never really thought about TMJ as a nutritional problem, but of course that could impact things.
1: No, massive, because combined TMJ pain with a bit of shortness of breath from the hot side of things and dysautonomia, It can make it really hard for some people to meet their nutritional requirements and to actually chew and get enough food in. Because you know as well, if we're not chewing our food, that's the first step of digestion. Your mouth then passes out onto your stomach. So then if you're not chewing your food properly, your stomach's got to deal with bigger particles of food to -hmm. break down. Then your stomach, that has the responsibility of looking after the rest of your digestive tract. So often our stomach won't let those foods through until they've digested it enough. Or they'll let partially digested food through, and that can then trigger too much bacteria growth in the gut. So, you know, one thing can have such a knock-on effect. So I guess working down then we've got the TMJ side of things. Swallowing issues can be quite big as well in hypermobility whether that's because of muscular dysphagia. So with us taking over everything that we do with our traps (laughs) and not using the correct muscles and not pulling back with our shoulder blades, that can then make it difficult to swallow for some people, Mm -hmm. which is where I guess the physical therapy side of things really helpful. Mm -hmm. On the other side, we've got mast cell activation can also impact swallowing, whether that's because of getting reflux. So both acid reflux coming up from our stomach or actually silent reflux. So sometimes we don't even realise that the acid's coming up but we start to feel like we need to clear our throat a lot because we've got mucus in there. And so just start to feel a bit more unsafe with getting things down our throat.
0: Yeah, yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. It makes me wonder too about gag reflexes. Is that a hypermobile thing? Because it is a thing for me, and I've always wondered if that's related.
1: Most definitely. I actually had a, re- a conversation about this with a client yesterday who. We're saying that their gag reflex is something that's impacted them a lot and they've gone to therapy to try and help to work them through it. But I know that's something that I've experienced as well, too, when I've had really bad flare ups of MCAS. Um, Mm. Yeah, it can just feel really unsafe to swallow and like you've got to flush everything down with a lot of liquid and that as well can in itself impact nutrition.
0: Yes, it makes sense. Yeah. Mm
1: Yeah. And then following on from that, there's a whole lot of other throat conditions like eosinophilic esophagitis, which is also related to mast cell activation. And going down to the stomach, we can get problems with stomach emptying. So on the whole with hypermobility, lots of people have slow gut motility, yeah. so really slow movement of food through the stomach, food through the intestines, constipation. But we can also get fast gut motility, particularly if people have had any sort of stomach surgeries or mm-hmm. with dysautonomia in some cases yeah so with slight gut motility it can be really uncomfortable because food can sit in the stomach for hours and it can then regurgitate back up and it can then really impact people getting enough food in because then a couple of hours later when we're meant to eat our next meal the food can still be sitting there mm-hmm. on the other hand when the food kind of dumps through the stomach too quickly that can cause symptoms in itself and can be sometimes accompanied by really loose bowel motions too that are quite urgent yes Or bacterial overgrowth in the gut okay yeah. And then working down the gut again with small intestines, any sort of inflammatory bowel diseases, people with MCAS or hypermobility can be at a high risk of. So sometimes mm-hmm. um, I know there's a huge connection between celiac disease and hypermobility. Mm-hmm. So people might have celiac and got, you know, celiac chronic fatigue, a few things going on there that might warrant then looking into hypermobility and just ruling that out as an option too. Yeah. And then working down to the lower gut, um, we've got, again, the gut motility changes, so whether that's really really slow gut motility to the point of things just not moving through too quickly at all whether that's because of the nerve input to the gut or because of tight pelvic floor and that side of things mm-hmm. or people can have really loose bowel motions from a variety of different reasons whether that's histamine reactions to not digesting fats properly and yeah so much more so many possibilities <laughs> yes yeah, so saying that when you see hypermobile mobile p- clients in clinic it can it can just look or opposite, different person to person
0: when you describe this whole digestive tract many of these things i've never really thought of but i have wondered about this delayed gastric emptying versus food moving too fast because it will be one or the other but it's not always consistent and so some people may have more contributions from mcas and i guess some people may have more contributions from pots and dysautonomia and um, more of a nerve input problem, all kinds of different things could be contributing, huh?
1: Definitely. And even the symptom picture that I see not that uncommonly in people with hypermobility as well as a client will come to me with quite mast cell dominant symptoms, loose urgent bowel motions a few times a day. And once we get the mast cell issues cleared up, things actually swing in the other direction and go too slow so quite a few people with hypermobility can also find that they've got slow gut motility until they get a food trigger and then things just kind of blow uh, through them. Wow. Interesting. When right. we kind of address that, we've got to peel back the layers of the onion and yeah, to the makes point sense. of just being in the middle.
0: Yes. The pendulum yeah. is coming to rest in the middle somehow. Yeah. So I'd love yes. to hear about that. You Maybe describe your process of working with your clients or some of the key guidelines, if there are any things that are helpful for indie people to follow as far as nutrition
1: goes yeah I guess on that scope it's so hard like a podcast to suggest specific things that we work on with nutrition because it can look so different um, person to person but I guess starting at the top like things that anyone can do before they get to a nutrition professional firstly tracking their triggers as hypermobile people we tend to be a bit more sensitive to certain things have more food sensitivities environmental sensitivities as well so really trying to figure out firstly what are the big ticket items that do upset your gut or your body in general yeah so I've actually got a the symptom tracker that I use with my clients off my website that people can download and with that you can just write in this the foods that you think you've reacted to what symptoms you've got from them. And then you can either fill out the next section or you can take it to a health professional to help you fill out. But we can basically up the top write a list of all the different food elements that you might be reacting to. And you can kind of tick off for each food which elements they have in there. So you can start to see the pattern of what might be causing issues from a food perspective. And there's also a little section there after that where you just like a little tick and flick where you can also select what you've been exposed to in an environmental sense. So whether you've been outside and there's been some pollen or some stress or other confounding factors in there mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So That's great. I find that quite helpful with clients.
0: Definitely. Tracking to help people keep a log seems to be so important on so many fronts when it comes to hypermobility syndromes.
1: Yeah, definitely. And just joining the dots because often if there's so much going on in our body, it can be really uncomfortable and hard to then tune into that. Yeah. But if we can just focus on one thing at a time and just work through it in a pace that feels safe and gentle for you it can make a really big difference with joining the dots yeah Yeah. i guess next up actually micronutrient deficiencies working with a health practitioner that can help you identify Mm. and correct micronutrient deficiencies can make a massive impact to people's journeys too Mm. with hypermobility because of those digestive changes because we've got more processes going on in our body we're more likely to be at risk of having low levels of vitamins and minerals Mm. because if we think about it vitamins and minerals are the things that make our body go the things that power all the reactions in our body and the toll that our body pays so if we're not digesting things as well and if we've got a higher usage that's when we need to pay a bit more attention to them and plus micronutrient deficiencies they can often for example b12 deficiency Um, often just looks like a worsening of POTS in hypermobile people. Mm. So we get more of those heart palpitations, shortness of breath, headaches, migraines, extreme fatigue, which, Mm. you know, typically are POTS symptoms. But um, when we go actually back to check the B12, I've seen this so many times in clients, it's suboptimal, if not deficient, Mm -hmm. and people aren't getting enough B12 to make that energy and do all the things that B12 does in the body. And then do you see a good response when they address that definitely in australia b12 shots are covered by the government if they're done by doctors so just a simple course of b12 shot if people's levels are low enough can make a world of difference within a few days if not a few weeks and then we've always got to ask the question too of why is the b12 low in the first place what's going on is this person vegetarian is this person just do they not like meat because of the texture or do we not have enough acid in the stomach to break that down? Is there a medication that's reducing acid? Is mm-hmm. hot turning down our digestive response? Then we've always got to ask that why question so we can see the next layer of strategies that we can do to then maintain the B12 levels or come up with a plan and say, okay, we might just be a little lower on the B12 um, side of things long-term. Let's just pop you on a long-term supplement yeah. in some cases. Yeah, gotcha. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess rather micronutrient deficiencies, so some people find that magnesium can be low, zinc, vitamin D, folate. So it's important to work with a health practitioner who can get those things tested, mm-hmm. but also look at the optimal ranges for them and help you find ways through diet, lifestyle, and sometimes supplements to then correct those and help you feeling a bit better on that front.
0: Yeah, so many of the symptoms could be symptoms of so many different things, like you were just mentioning, the B12 deficiency looks a lot like chronic fatigue and POTS type stuff. And that can make it so difficult to tease apart what are we really dealing with here? What are all the contributing factors? So it does seem really important before we start taking the huge stack of supplements to first find out, are our levels low? Do we need to supplement with this or that?
1: Exactly. And with supplements, we could all be on a hundred supplements that claim different things, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be effective. And honestly, with supplements, doing them really tailored and doing less can sometimes be more, you know, when we think of supplements, we think of vitamins and minerals, which are going to do some things, but there's so much more to supplements out there. So for example, all of the wonderful things that can help to support gut health. And Mm -hmm. of course, um, there was a wonderful research paper that came out can't remember if it was last year or the year before, but it's called histamine intolerance originates in the gut. So supporting Mm -hmm. the gut microbiome has a massive impact on our histamine metabolism and burden as well. All the way to other wonderful anti-inflammatory agents, which can help to reduce pain and more. So, yeah, yeah. but really on that scope, working with a provider who's had extra upskilling in that area and has an understanding of hypermobility can help there too. The other area that can be really helpful for people to focus on as well, either before seeing a nutrition professional or even it's one of the first places that we start as nutrition professionals, is making sure people are getting regular balanced meals in. So making sure people aren't skipping meals, are able to get the food and in- intake in for the day and that they're balanced. So there is a good mix there of proteins, carbs, fats and fiber. Because if we're not even meeting our, reg- our our basic nutrient requirements, there's no point of progressing to that stage of doing elimination diets or other fancy things. So when we go on Google and type in what to do for X condition, often pop up first. Yes. And then if you're not able to get in regular balanced meals, we've really got to find what those hurdles are in the way of that and work on addressing those first. Because once we remove those roadblocks or even just lower them enough that people can step over them, things start to work a bit easier and nutrition just gradually starts to improve.
0: So first things first, basically make sure that people clear the barriers to getting their basic nutritional needs met and then work on the fine tuning after that.
1: Exactly. Because we see time and time again, clients come to us and they're not even meeting their basic nutrition intakes, but they've been trying diets like the low FODMAP diet, or there's the RPAH diet in Australia, which is all about reducing all chemical components in Mm -hmm. foods or the four big ones, which they're all very restrictive, which can mean that overall people can be not meeting their nutrient requirements as well, which is then further driving symptoms and everything else
0: that's a really good piece of advice. I guess if I think about most of the patients and clients that I've worked with over the years and their reports of gut issues that, of course, I don't work with them on, but most of them are dealing with MCAS. And I know that can look a lot of different ways for people. What are some of the ways that people with MCAS use nutrition to address that
1: yeah mcas is a tricky one because it's so big and as soon as we go to google it online everything that we see is about low histamine diets, and then when we look into that very very restrictive which as we said before if people aren't meeting their basic nutrition needs those things aren't necessarily going to take them Mm forwards. so the way i start with mcas is And I've actually got a histamine resource kit up on my website, which goes through this in a bit more detail as well. But I usually start in every other place apart from reducing histamine because with mast cell activation syndrome, we want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can on other fronts to make sure that our mast cells can be less reactive. So what that can look like is even hydration has a massive impact actually there. Mm -hmm. So there's heaps of research papers out there showing that if we're hydrated properly, we get less allergic reactions. Um, More for people with asthma, I don't know specifically, and I don't think there's um, that evidence specifically for MCAS, but just overall for allergic reactions and histamine responses. People who are dehydrated are at a higher risk of allergic reactions and um, more severe allergic reactions too, which Mm. then feeds off POTS because with POTS we're constantly getting rid of fluid and sodium via the kidneys, so we are more likely to be on the back foot with dehydration. So that's where even just starting with getting your pot strategies right, yeah. Making sure you're hydrated, electrolytes in the morning, electrolytes throughout the day, salt compression, that can help the MCAS side of things. It can be one piece of the puzzle.
0: I never learned that about that relationship between POTS and MCAS. I have heard before about the relationship between the histamine increasing vessel permeability and therefore making the POTS symptoms worse. But now we're going from POTS back to MCAS too yeah i definitely live on electrolytes all day long <laughs> it yep. does make a huge difference i rarely have pots symptoms anymore uh, because i am just pumped full of salt and electrolytes
1: no same it makes a world of difference but that's also the hard thing with pots and mcas because then as soon as we get an mcas flare up as you said the vessels dilate and we often get a pots flare up, and then that mm-hmm. pots flare up makes the MCAS flare up worse. And it's just mm-hmm. like Tweedle Dum and Tweedle Dee. It's like, where do you start with those? Yeah. But anything that we can do to break those cycles in between can help. So yeah, is good. Uh, what else is good? Blood sugar regulation. That's really important. So that's where regular, balanced meals come in. Because if mm-hmm. we're not skipping meals, if we're having three meals a day, plus or minus stacks, if we're getting a mix of a bit of proteins, carbs, fats, and fiber in there we are more likely to have more stable blood sugar, which in turn, because when we get those blood sugar spikes and then a really big drop afterwards, that can also be a trigger for our cells to degranulate and release more histamine too.
0: I never knew that. That's fascinating. This is making my life make even more sense.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Actually, something that's really um, fun to do if you've got access to it. And I know my best friend, actually, she's just finishing her PhD in um, sports dietetics using continuous glucose monitors, because have Mm. you heard of them before?
0: I have. I've been thinking about that recently because Mm. I've always been sensitive to blood sugar spikes. So it's just something I'm working on. So I've been thinking about it and I know they're available. I'm not sure the details of how to get a hold of one, but...
1: Definitely. In Australia, you can just go straight on the website online. And I think for some companies as well, look around because there often are discount codes as well Mm -hmm. for your first one. The continuous glucose monitor. So it's basically a tiny needle that goes on the back of your arm and it just monitors your blood sugar levels for two weeks. So you leave it on there for two weeks, totally safe to do that. And it feeds through to your phone so you can see real time in a graph what's happening with your blood sugar levels. And that gives people a wonderful two-week window that you can play around with diet and you can see like Oh, look, my blood sugar's dipping here. Let's try eating some more protein with breakfast or mm-hmm. blood sugar's dipping overnight. That's why I'm waking up and mm-hmm. my mind racing and I'm sweating and I need to pee. Let's then put something in, like a bedtime snack in before that to then stop that from dipping overnight. Yeah, I've, I've had some really wonderful success with the clients and I find them they're fascinating. Yeah.
0: My mind is blown a little bit. Some of these yeah. nighttime symptoms that I've just associated with POTS, maybe related to blood sugar impacting histamine, impacting POTS. I mean, it could be going in this stepwise
1: way. Definitely. Especially when people wake up in the night, our mind's racing. We just can't get back to sleep. And we yeah. just feel really agitated, especially around the one o'clock, three o'clock time in the morning. Yeah. yeah. The way to test if it is a blood sugar dip though, or not really test scientifically, but play around with that is If you get up and have a tiny little bedtime snack, so maybe a little bit of oats and some hot water or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you get back to sleep kind of soon after that that can sometimes indicate in some people that it was a blood sugar dip Mm. that you were having because as soon as that levels out a bit more, you feel better. But Mm -hmm. it's interesting though, because on the other side of things, when we do get more mast cell activation, I believe it's our insulin becomes less sensitive. So Mm. we are more likely to get blood sugar spikes and dips. So again, it's that cycle of more MCAS, worse blood sugar Mm -hmm. regulation, worse blood sugar regulation, more MCAS.
0: Fascinating.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so if we can put in some strategies and play around with... That side of things and making sure people are getting regular balanced meals, again, that can help to sometimes ease those histamine symptoms a bit too.
0: Absolutely. So we've got some really big ones here. Basic nutritional needs, getting met is Mm -hmm. step one. We've got a big emphasis on hydration. And now we've got a big Mm -hmm. emphasis on paying attention to blood sugar spikes. We haven't even done anything to our diet regarding histamine specifically yet. We're just hitting these big markers.
1: No. And next up to that, i put nervous system regulation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you find with the yoga side of things, with the people that you teach, have you heard much feedback about how, how that impacts people's gut symptoms and digestion? Not I specifically, that, yeah. but I would
0: expect that to be the case, especially with what we know about yeah. the low vagal tone among people with hypermobility and so many of the things that we do in a mindful slow breath oriented yoga practice such as breathing and even making some sound and all the different ways we can be stimulating the vagus nerve and triggering some down regulation of the nervous system that's where i think yoga shines for human beings period but especially for bendy people is in its ability to help us integrate our parts and down regulate our nervous system as well as coming to a place of acceptance about our needs and about this unique body that we live in. But definitely I, mm. I don't see yoga so much as, um, I don't see its strong suit being in the musculoskeletal realm. I think I see its strong mm. suit really being in the nervous system regulation realm.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Cause yeah, there was also a study done a few years ago. I mean, it wasn't specifically on yoga, but it did have a big element of breath work in there too, but it was done on an app called Nerva. Have you heard of that before? Mm-mm. No, I know it's quite big in Australia, but it's basically a 15-minute daily gut-brain kind of meditation hypnotherapy thing daily, Mm -hmm. and they showed after six weeks of getting people to do that, which it starts with a basic body scan or like little like clench and release exercise, it then works into guided visualization, and then a bit more breathing and meditation from there. It had a very similar effect, just as effective actually, as doing a low FODMAP diet for six weeks. You know, if we can get Get that dietary, yeah. So if we can get that reduction in bloating symptoms, even just to ease that gut brain access without actually reducing anything or eliminating anything from our diet, which is so stressful, takes a hell of a lot of energy and effort. And yeah, leveraging that can be really valuable as well.
0: That is so fabulous. Yeah, hopefully listeners are feeling relieved (laughs) to know there are ways to manage these conditions that don't involve all this really nitpicky elimination stuff that many of us have just been around and around with so many times it's daunting to think about doing that again so i really love this bigger picture approach
1: yeah no it it can make a huge impact and exactly there's no point in doing an elimination diet unless you're going to have an exit route Mm -hmm. and you're also going to support The other mechanisms needed to help you deal with those. I mean, it's actually different elimination diet to elimination diet, but for especially with a low histamine diet, we need to also be working on how to then support histamine metabolism a bit better in the long run too. Yeah. Whether that's through reducing inflammation along the gut lining, eating lots of fruits and veggies to support liver health, all of that side of things. But of course, mast cells are just going to be mast cells to release a lot of histamine as well in some cases. So that can make things a bit tricky too. Right.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned the liver. Can you talk about the impact that MCAS has on liver function? Yeah, so
1: I guess if we just start off with how histamine is broken down at the liver. A lot of the histamine in our body, especially the dietary histamine or histamine from our cells along our gut lining is broken down at the lining of the gut, so by a DAO enzyme. But if there's more inflammation there, there's going to be less DAO. So food and nutrients and everything from our gut gets absorbed into our bloodstream. Where does that blood go next? It goes to the liver. Mm-hmm. the liver has to pick up a lot of the slack and process a lot of things from the gut too. Mm-hmm. So histamine gets broken down by two pathways in phase two detoxification. I think it's methylation and sulfation. The way that it was described to me that's really stuck is that we've got for phase two detoxification, which is basically our body breaking down toxic substances into less toxic substances. We've got a couple of really big highways in the liver and usually the cars go through the highway, they get to where they need to go, that's okay. But when we have more things going into the liver that need to go down those pathways, the cars can start to block up and have accidents. And when we get an overflow of cars and things can't move through as well, that's when we're going to get symptoms of these things. So for Mm -hmm. example, I think it's a methylation pathway. It doesn't just process histamine, it processes a hell of a lot of other things too, Mm -hmm. including say our sex hormones, so estrogen Mm -hmm. and amines too. So not histamine, but other sorts of amino acids and proteins with the amine in the name. So with mast cell activation with overwhelming these pathways, it can then make it a bit harder to break down other agents in the body. So that's why in some cases, I mean, multifaceted reasons, but hormonal issues in females and mast cell activation tend to go hand in hand, too, yeah. because we get that um, bouncing off effect of estrogen increasing histamine, histamine increasing oh. estrogen, reducing estrogen detoxification from the liver.
0: Interesting. So,
1: These are yeah. some complex processes going on in the body. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating though, because when people can't explain what's going on, you can feel so much shame and like, why is this happening? Nothing's making sense. Am I making it up? We go into that imposter syndrome mode, but from studying nutritional biochemistry and going down this pathway, we can see that most cases there is a really fundamental reason why something is happening. and We yeah. can put a story to that with what's happening in the body. And I know for me personally, that's been wonderful for just removing that shame and bringing so much more acceptance to what's going on and then coming up with like, okay, if this is what's happening? What's the solution? How can we improve this and optimize this pathway?
0: You're right. If we are stuck in the not understanding what's going on, we can't even get to the starting point of, okay, now what's the solution? What can I do about it? Because I don't even know what it is yet. And that's Mm -hmm. what makes me so sad about the delayed time towards diagnosis for so many people with HSD and HEDS is that they spend years, sometimes decades, not being able to understand what is going on in their own experience and it delays solutions Mm -hmm. that are Mm -hmm. out there. So this is really interesting and super helpful. I've got some really useful takeaways already. I never would have thought all these big picture steps can really impact MCAS. And impact our GI issues that we're having with hypermobility. I'm just recapping it for myself. Nervous system regulation, uh, basic nutritional needs, hydration, and blood sugar regulation. Those are some big ones.
1: Yeah, and exactly. And a lot of these, they're a lot more achievable to tackle than doing massive dietary changes as well. And all of these we can work towards in little achievable steps. And small day-to-day things can really make such a big impact in these areas.
0: Yeah, same with movement-based stuff. It's about frequency rather than volume. A little bit every day is way better than a lot once a week or a lot every two weeks or whatever. So it's these small little habit changes that go such a long way to managing symptoms.
1: Well, what other things that you'd want to share with listeners? I think really just taking things one step at a time. Is so much value and just don't get yourself overwhelmed. Focus on what's achievable for you at the moment. Also, building up your support network. So mm-hmm. going on the Earls Downloss website and having a look at their practitioner listings. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. If you have any local Facebook groups that you can post and say, hey, who's a good X Y Z in this area? Because You can definitely do quite a few things on your own, but especially in hypermobility, it can just help to fast track things to work with a health professional who understands the area as well. And I don't know. I I can't think of anything else. Just, yeah, regular balanced meals. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Start there. Everything,
1: start (laughs) there. I
0: know that's like the most basic thing, but often overlooked probably. And I think your point about pacing is really important. So just one thing at a time, take your time. This is a lifetime of of learning really and evolving because it can be overwhelming. I know. Pick the low hanging fruit. It's another way of saying it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Pick the low hanging fruit and start there.
0: Yeah. Well, Savvy, this has been so insightful. I've learned so much from this conversation. Can you tell listeners once again, where they can find out more about you and your work online?
1: Yeah. On Instagram, my handle is hypermobility.dietitian. And that's spelling the dietitian with T's, not a C in there. And then my website and my clinic name is Savvy Dietetics. So www.savvydietetics.com.au. Great.
0: Thank you so much for being here and listeners. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Thank you, Libby.